When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history, little known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your bastions of boomer nostalgia, your leaders of lost innocence, your ace merrills of melancholia, your tragic train track victims of trivia. <laughs> My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. That was a good one. Thank you. Thank you. I worked hard on that one. And today, we are going to talk about a movie that dared to ask the question, hey, do you guys want to go see a dead body? I laugh to keep from crying because this movie levels me in so many ways. Uh, We are talking about Stand By Me, Rob Reiner's adaptation of Stephen King's short story, which explores an element as fleeting and unstable as uranium, straight male friendship. Stand by me. Stand by me. How do you pronounce? You do stand by me. Stand by me. I do stand by me. What's your inflection on the Benny King song? Stand by me. Because I think he sings stand by me. Like, I think it's the emphasis is on me. Um, You know, all I thought of was the Clash song, actually. Really? Say so you stand by your man. Uh, tell me something I didn't understand. Oh, I'll oh, train in vain. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Uh, both better songs than this movie. Oh. <laughs> I was waiting to see how mean I could be as quickly as possible to you uh, about this thing that you love so dearly. Go ahead. Well, yes, I wanted to pick a movie about friendship for several reasons. One was that we missed a week of TMI recently, and I was shocked to find myself inundated with messages from listeners inquiring about our well-being, which was immensely touching. Uh, It's seriously so heartening to hear from all of you. I always feel bad when people leave really sweet reviews on Apple Podcasts because we can't answer back, but uh, thank you all who do so. Uh, We have a new friend who suggested a bunch of really great episode ideas on uh, on an Apple Podcast review. Thank Thank you so much for that. You better believe we're going to be doing Willy Wonka and Big Trouble in Little China at some point soon. Uh, So I figured, you know, what better way to thank you all for checking in than with this movie that is sort of a tribute to friendship. But I also wanted to do Stand By Me because it seems pretty adjacent to my beloved Wonder Years, which I've been talking about doing for the last 
six mm. months, I think, and I've yet to assemble my lengthy How long is the outline now? Uh, it's like 30-something pages. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I got to whittle yep. it down. Don't worry. Um, so while I'm working on that, I figured this was a nice stopgap because uh, it's kind of vaguely similar to The Wonder Years. Uh, in fact, I think the sort of similarity to The Wonder Years is one of the things that put you off of watching Stand By Me, Heigl. I think it's got <laughs> more edge than... The Wonder Years. Well, it has a dead, it has a corpse. Yeah, I mean, f- fair. Uh, so, so it sounds like you had never watched it until the other day. I want to know what you thought of it. I must have watched it as a kid. I just didn't have any particularly strong memories of it. I think I missed, like, the, the window of time in my life when I would have cared about this. I also, like, I'm coming in as, like, a Stephen King fan, and it's kind of hard for me to not just want this to be it. Okay, <laughs> where yeah. Where it's, like, where I'm, like, um... You know, I think he writes kids really well, and and I and having read it in like the reread reread it in like the past six months, I'm like, yeah, uh, really great characterization, really you know beautiful emotions and sentimentality. Where's the cool killer clown? With without that, it's just kids in the woods and Feldman mugging, um, and I hate that, uh, so much. <laughs> No, I don't know. I I I don't know. Uh, low was low was my wife was talking about how much she was like, "Oh, I love this movie because I imagined it it was like that I was like getting a secret look into the world of boys." And I was like, "I don't know." Some of the pop culture shit for sure, like, you know, the 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 like stuff that now scans is almost an all too obvious influence on like Quentin Tarantino dialogue where they're just like Debating pop culture stuff. Well, well, little boys communicate exclusively through movie and TV show quotes. Like, that's... Yeah, I just don't remember, like... I don't know, dude. If I was at this age, like, I'm trying to remember the friends that I had when I was 12 and, um, you know, shouts to whoever they were. Uh, <laughs> really? I don't recall... You know? <laughs> I, no, I think I remember some of them. Um, perhaps even fondly. Um... <laughs> I, yeah, I just don't remember like crying about my dad with these kids. Well, yeah, like, no, I mean that's you know, what, I mean, well, you're lucky. I think I should say, um, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know, I've had a very trauma. Well, except for all the death, but I had a mostly trauma-free uh, childhood. But like, I didn't talk about like, I didn't like. I wasn't like 11 years old, like in the woods with my friends, being like, yeah, you know, like, do you guys think about dying? I started to only do that really in high school. I'm kind of surprised that it took you that long, knowing you now. Maybe you're just catching up. I was not, up. yeah. No, I was, a, I was a goofy kid. I was not particularly morbid. And just life just grinds you down. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know why this didn't hit for me. Part of it's just my hatred of the 50s. I, uh, you know, anytime you got to put that f***ing lollipop song in my head, I'm just, I'm, uh, I'm having a bad time. Like that, The inclusion of that song. When you said, I really hate the 50s, that was the moment that I just keyed in on. I knew you were going to cite that. <laughs> Them doing the pop sound on the... Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't like Feldman. I really don't. And I well, don't no think that's... That's like the idea. <laughs> he was a huge star. He was in everything around this time. He was in Lost Boys. He was in the one Friday, the, one of the better Friday the 13th. That's in Gremlins. People like Goonies. Yeah, Gremlins, Goonies. People liked him. <sighs> I, I was reading about his performance in this. People would talk about like, oh yeah, like he was he he went to a really dark place and like blah blah. That scene where he's like yelling at the guy in the junkyard, I'm like, I find that laughable. Like him trying to telegraph like darkness as like a bad kid. I'm like, get f-ing serious. I mean, 
River Phoenix is like scarier to me in this movie. <laughs> he had a rough life. As I know. That's what I'm saying. It's truly a failure of his acting that he was like unable to transmit any of the awful things that actually happened to him into a compelling portrayal of the same you know, of like of that trauma. You know, he's just unable to be anything other than like mugging and grating. <laughs> Don't you hate when you can't monetize your trauma? <laughs> suck. Um, pros. Yeah, pros. You I know, want to hear your pros. You know, the kids are all great except for Feldman. Um, their chemistry feels really good. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, um, assured direction. Some nice landscape shots. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland has some great silk shirts. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, John Cusack. Great, almost cameo. Yeah, yeah. as like as the the late. Older brother of Gordy, the the main character of Stand By Me. I kind of forgot he was in it until he has that like one little flashback scene. Yeah. Um, what else? What else? What else? What else? Who's the dad? Is that Ed O'Neill? No, that's not Ed O'Neill. What's that guy's name? How do you not Marshall know Marshall Bell. Yeah. You're right. Guy, he looks just like Ed O'Neill. That guy's a real dick. Yeah. He does great 50s dickhead dad. You know, I think, I think final thought. I think my my problem with this was that having consumed a fair amount of Stephen King, I'm not like a super fan, but I, I've read a lot of it. I did not find this. I, I found all of these archetypes just reassembled from other Stephen King books, especially it. But like, oh, it's the kid who wants to be a writer. Oh, it's the kid with the bad dad. Oh, it's the fat kid. Oh, it's the bullies. And then like, just it's just it feels like a phoned in draft. <laughs> And I understand that some of that is because the movie has been so canonized and so become so archetypal. But like, you know, if you read a lot of Stephen King, you're like, especially again, especially it like this really just feels like a rough draft of it. Well, well I think it's the other way around. I think this is the I think this is the biographical stuff that he put in all of his other stories without much fantasy added. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about this. Yeah, that's later. What, I mean, that's what sucks. <laughs> <laughs> put the put the clown back in. Uh, I get. I, does he have a weight problem or something? There's so much fat kid stuff in his in his books. Um, that I don't know. Yeah, there's Ben Hanscom in It, whose like entire character arc is that he was a fat kid who lost a bunch of weight. There's obviously the book Thinner. Um, there's Vern in this, and then ev of course, and then every protagonist is a writer. You know, so. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing that makes me really like. Oh, and this, the ending that... thing, and the ending thing. I always forget that Stephen King is like unable to let go of the fact that he has been criticized for having bad endings. So every single one of his, like, uh, not every single, a huge amount of his works have some kind of meta nod to the fact that his endings are bad. It's like someone said that to him once, and he was like, he's been like haunted by it for his entire career because like his characters are. There's a line in a bunch of his things where someone's like. Yeah, it's a good story, but the ending sucks. Or like, yeah, endings are hard, aren't they? Like, it's just, I don't know. He has a great book on writing, which yeah. anyone who who is interested in the craft of writing, I won't even say wants to be a writer, but it's fascinating even if you don't. It's just so cool to see like him break it down. Um, it's a great book. I don't know. I, well, the the ending of this movie was at least the, the the quote that it ends on that levels me any every time. You know, I never had yeah. any friends later on, like the ones I had when I was twelve. Jesus, Great kicker. Does anyone? Uh, that wasn't 
the kicker to the short story. That was something that the screenwriters added that was included somewhere in the middle of the short story. So um, I thought it was a great ending. I mean, I, I, I mean, in case people listening right now haven't guessed right now, I, I think this is a wonderful movie. And I think one of the things that I love about it is that it's meaning changes depending on where you're at in your life when you see it. And yes. the kind of the best example of this for me is the Beach Boys song, Wouldn't It Be Nice from Pet Sounds, which we absolutely should do on here at some point. When you're a kid, Wouldn't It Be Nice is aspirational. You empathize with the character of the song, dreaming about days when they're grown up and living on their own with their girlfriend. And, you know, and then when you listen to it, when you get older, it becomes more about you and your own relationship to the song. And you think back to the first couple times when you heard it and your own inexperience and your own naive and uh, it becomes more about your past. And so that's sort of what I feel about Stand By Me. Because as a kid, when I watched it, it was an adventure movie of kids running away from home. And then now watching it, it's a movie about growing up and the inevitable drift that happens in the process when you kind of grow apart from your friends, which at this point in your life become your chosen family in a lot of ways. It's sort of the beginning of that weird adolescent period when you kind of have a drift from your own family. Um and yeah, I mean, to me, it's all about that line at the end, about the friends that you had when you were 12. I think that that's uh, incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I think that's all accurate. I think, I think uh, you're making an eloquent case for it. I wish there was a cool, scary clown. <laughs> Maybe a werewolf. Or like a guy with like a hook for a hand. Mm, mm, or Jack Nicholson. Okay. Oh yeah, I was gonna say yeah. Or what about a guy who gets thinner? Or at least like cow blood raining down. <laughs> it's pig's blood. Pig's blood. Excuse me. Did you see that tweet the other day that was like a picture of like uh, uh, Sissy Spacek and Carrie, and someone was like, "And you're telling me this girl was bullied in high school, like <laughs> this beautiful ethereal Aryan goddess?" Um. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Well, let us begin. From the long road, from the page to the big screen, to the shenanigans the tween leads got up to when the cameras weren't rolling, to their own traumatic personal histories they brought to the roles, and the weird role that Michael Jackson almost played in the soundtrack, <laughs> here's everything you didn't know about Stand By Me. And maybe you could be the one who stands by me. And after all, you're my dead kid in the woods wall. No, that didn't go well. I should have prepared something better. Stand By Me is, of course, based on a short story by Stephen King called The Body, which is featured in his 1982 collection Different Seasons, which also featured Rita Hayward and The Shawshank Redemption, which was adapted into The Shawshank Redemption in 1994, and also the story adapted into Apt's Pupil by Brian Singer in 1998. So a rich text. And in the short story, The Body, about a bunch of tweens seeking out a dead body, there were numerous nods to Stephen King's previous works. In fact, the characters in The Body are familiar with Shawshank Prison, the character Teddy Duchamp, played by Corey Feldman, is mentioned in Stephen King's first book, Carrie, in which Carrie destroys a gas station that Teddy Duchamp once worked at. The dog Chomper is compared to Cujo, and the bully character in the body, Ace Merrill, played by Keith Sutherland in the movie, later reappeared in the book Needful Things. 
And so while the film Stand By Me tugs at the heartstrings with its bittersweet tale of coming-of-age growing pains, Stephen King's short story is, as you would probably expect, a little bit darker. It heavily implied that the discovery of the dead body of Ray Brower, the young man who'd been struck by the train, haunted these kids for the rest of their lives. And also in the short story version, the character of Gordy Lachance, who's the Will Wheaton character, the main character, is the only member of the four who survives into adulthood. Like in the movie, it ends by describing the tragic murder of Chris Chambers, River Phoenix's character, after a fight in a fast food restaurant turns violent. But the story also goes on to detail the untimely deaths of Vern Tessio, it's Jerry O'Connell, and Teddy Duchamp as well. Vern dies in a fire after a house party, I think, while the troubled Teddy Duchamp dies in a drunk driving accident that kills himself and the passengers in his car. Dark. And Stephen King, he was very uh, uneasy about discussing the origin of this story with director Rob Reiner, but he only said that it was deeply autobiographical. And mention Rob Reiner, the original director signed on to adapt Stephen King's short story was the British filmmaker Adrian Lin, who's best known for uh, sort of erotically charged movies, I should say, <laughs> with like Flashdance, Fatal Attraction, Indecent Proposal, and the Lolita remake with Jeremy Irons. So that's kind of a weird choice for this coming of age movie about a bunch of boys looking for a dead body. Don't want to get into his head. <laughs> Uh, Liney apparently had worked himself into a frenzy during the production of Nine and a Half Weeks with Mickey Rourke and Kim Bassinger, and he promised himself a six-month break once that wrapped in 1984. And that was bad news for the producers of Stand By Me, who wanted to move a little quicker and didn't want to delay the start of the movie. So they moved on to Rob Reiner, whose storied career we've already discussed on our Princess Bride episode recently. He's the son of comedy royalty Carl Reiner, and by this point, he'd already worked as a writer on the groundbreaking Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour show, acted for eight seasons as Michael Meathead Stivic on the equally groundbreaking CBS sitcom All in the Family, and directed the equally groundbreaking music mockumentary This Is Spinal Tap in 1984, as well as a movie with John Cusack called The Sure Thing, which, as far as I know, was not groundbreaking. <laughs> Rob Reiner, I, I've actually never seen that, of you? No. Okay, moving on. Rob Reiner had shown serious interest in adapting this short story because it mirrored his own childhood in many ways. Like the characters in the film, he was 12 when the book was set in 1959. Actually, the book was set in 1960, but he changed it to 59, guess, to get that 50s nostalgia cachet in. But more to the point, Rob Reiner had a difficult relationship with his father. And as you'll recall, Gordy Lachance, the main character, always felt that his dad didn't love him as much as he loved his elder brother, the family golden child who died in a car accident several months before the story took place. And Gordy's alienation from his own family provides the motivation for his character to prove himself and find the body of this boy and become a town hero. You know, that's kind of the through line of the movie. They want to be heroes. And then at the end of the movie, when they finally find him and they decide to leave him in peace in the woods and Vern's like, don't you want to be heroes? And Gordy says, not like this. So that's kind of, that, that, that stokes his whole desire for uh, for this quest to find a dead body. It's really hard. He pull, pull, This movie pulls off an interesting trick about romanticizing the quest for a dead body, I will say. <laughs> it, it sounds almost like quaint and sweet until it's not. Yeah. But anyway, Rob Reiner really related to this whole sort of wanting to prove himself to his father because his dad, Carl Reiner, was a legend. And it, he really struggled to step out from his shadow. 
Carl Reiner is responsible for the Dick Van Dyke Show, one of the most popular and long-running sitcoms. And he had this incredible partnership with Mel Brooks. And he directed Steve Martin in The Jerk and All of Me and The Man with Two Brains. Uh, he really has an incredible career. And for everything that Rob was able to do, you know, a lot of people still saw him as Carl Reiner's son. So daddy issues becomes <laughs> an ever-deepening part of TMI's lore. So Stephen King's The Body was adapted by screenwriters Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon. That's an incredible name. Their <laughs> only previous script had been the sci-fi romance Starman. That seems like uh, something you'd be into. Yeah, it's John Carpenter. Is it really? You oh, might man. like Starman, actually. It's it's a weird little movie. It's uh, Jeff Bridges plays the titular Starman. Uh, it's an odd duck in his filmography, but it's you might like it, actually. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You watch this for me. I'll watch Starman for you. <laughs> But their script adaptation of The Body closely resembled Stephen King's short story, which presented all four of the central boys as, you know, sort of equally important. But when Rob Reiner came on board, he made some changes, and some of these are relatively minor. We talked about him moving the movie back a year from 1960 to 1959, and he also shifted the setting from Stephen King's beloved fictional town of Castle Rock, Maine, to Oregon. The funniest thing about that to me is that Rob Reiner then took the name Castle Rock for his production company. <laughs> I forget if the town in the movie is still Castle Rock and it just is set in Oregon uh, rather it, than Maine or yeah, it's just, Castle Rock feels very Maine to me though. Mm, yeah. Mm. But Rob also softened the material so that it wasn't quite so brutal, which is why the characters of Teddy and Vern don't die at the end as they do in the story. But Reiner's most important change to the script was making the character of Gordy the focal point. As we said in the initial version of the script, Gordy was just an observer. He was kind of like the Nick Carraway character in this movie and uh, not the chief protagonist. And this left the script with a real problem. Rob said that they had great characters, but it, the movie just lacked a focus. It needed a central character to drive the plot forward. And <laughs> Rob Reiner, he spent days aimlessly driving around L.A., which is also Lionel Richie's preferred method of writing songs, to figure out how to make the script work. And he said, I agreed to direct it without really knowing what it was going to be about. In the book, it was about four boys. But after about five days of driving around, I realized it was really Gordy's story. In the book, Gordy was kind of a dispassionate observer, but once I made Gordy the central focus of the piece, then it made sense to me. This movie was all about a kid who didn't feel good about himself and whose father didn't love him. So the film became about an insecure kid looking for something, and Reiner further explains he's driven to go see this body because he never cried at his brother's funeral, and his father always paid more attention to his older brother who died. Oh, I was just going to say it just seems like a weird thing to transmute into like your goals, you know? Going to find a dead body, but just like you know, you didn't uh, you didn't cry at your brother's funeral. So I just no, I guess that makes sense. I don't know. The other major change Rob Reiner made to the original script was the film's title. <laughs> the movie was originally called The Body after Stephen King's short story, but this was not well loved among the producers of the film. Reiner wisely observed, calling it The Body with Stephen King attached would have meant that people would have thought it was a horror movie. And screenwriter Reynold Gideon agreed, commenting that it, quote, sounded either like an adult film, a bodybuilding film, or another Stephen King horror movie. So Rob Reiner suggested the name Stand By Me, based on the Benny King song that he chose to play at the end of the movie. Co-writer Reynold Gideon said that Reiner's suggestion was 
the least unpopular opinion, which leads me to believe that it was kind of reluctantly embraced by everybody when they couldn't think of anything better. Uh, the only drawback to the title was that Benny King's Stand By Me was released in 1961, two years after the film takes place. Oops. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, you know, fine. That's fine. You want a better name? Are we, are we spitballing yeah, a better Yeah, I was name? spitballing. I was trying to spitball. I don't have anything. Um, I mean, you guys want to see a dead body is a good name. That's a really good name for a movie. Uh, especially this was like the, you know, the era of like, don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. Stop. Or yeah, mom exactly. will shoot. You know, you had these long run on titles. They should have gone with you guys want to see a dead body. Is this the origin of that phrase? Like, hey, you guys want to see a dead body? Like, is that... I think it has I feel to like be. I hear that in yeah. like Family Guy or Robot Chicken yeah. or stuff. It's like Oh, yeah. Family Guy loved this. They did a they did that when they did their King episode, this was one of the ones that they parodied. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um Simpsons did the there was a Simpsons bit on this where they find the corpse in the reservoir. <laughs> God. Yeah, I I was watching this again, I was like really shocked by how much of st- stuff is just like taken for granted that kind of comes from this movie, you know. Yeah. Archetypal. It really is. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Well, even with a big up-and-coming director like Rob Reiner attached, Stand By Me was a hard sell to studios. Reiner hoped that it could, quote, find a small audience that would enjoy it, but he also felt, there's no way this picture is going to do business because no one who went to see Rambo will go see our film. True. 
Stand By Me's co-writer and producer Bruce Evans explained in an interview with Variety, every studio in town had turned us down. The consensus was that no one was interested in a story about four 12-year-old boys on a railroad track. He further observed that studio executives didn't know how to market the film because the central theme of Stand By Me is very dark and there's no romantic subplot. Evans and the rest of the production argued that this was actually the movie's selling point because it was a coming-of-age drama that didn't fall back on cliches like first kisses. As Evans explained, it was about kids becoming aware of their own mortality, and there really wasn't a movie like that. Eventually, Embassy Pictures agreed to finance the film, and as Evans put it, Embassy was the last station before the desert. After that, (laughs) there was nothing. And Embassy was co-owned by TV producer Norman Lear, who had produced All in the Family, in which Rob Reiner had starred all throughout the 70s. So I imagine that was helpful. But then Norman Lear sold Embassy just after the deal for Stand By Me was signed in 1985. And the new owners of Embassy Pictures, uh, Coca-Cola, which is weird, (laughs) saw very little potential for this movie about kids seeking out a dead body. So they pulled the plug something like two to three days before shooting was set to begin. Rob Reiner explained that the entire cast and crew were already on location in Oregon with purpose-built sets all ready to go when they were told that the financing had run dry, which I think is the same thing that happened to John Hughes doing uh, Home Alone. I thought that happened... Or Chris Columbus, rather. Did that happen? I can't remember where that happened in the production process, but yeah. God, that's gotta just suck ass. I know. Reiner said, it was nerve-wracking because we had all these people up here and we got nothing. We had no financing. But Norman Lear, presumably flush with Coke bucks from selling his studio uh, to the Sugar Water people, he believed in the film, or at least he felt he owed his former star, Rob Reiner. And he put in around, as he described it, eight million in change of his own money to finance Stand By Me. Later telling the New York Times, I liked the script. I liked Rob. I liked the boys. That's nuts that he's still alive. He just turned 100. Norman Lear? Yeah. Yeah, Mel Brooks is 97 today. Today, yeah. Yeah. Um, Which brings us to the boys, who were not back in town, because they never left. (laughs) Uh, The... Yeah, my favorite thing about this movie, the kids' chemistry. We have Will Wheaton as um, as Gordy. We have a young Jerry, pre-Kangaroo Jack, Jerry O'Connell as Vern. Uh, we've got the doomed young Indiana Jones star. Mm. Uh, uh, we gotta do Indiana Jones. Why haven't we fast-tracked that? We got River Phoenix in there as Chris Chambers, and we have Feldman. Um, <laughs> full stop. Your hatred of Feldman. <laughs> I just warms my heart. Do you think child actors can be good? I thought River Phoenix is great. Yeah. Uh, Jodie Foster. That's true. Uh, um, Kurt Russell in the computer wore tennis shoes. <laughs> anyway, Reiner had nearly 300 auditions looking for these leads and he wanted to find kids whose actual real life personalities mirrored the characters that they were playing. You've got Chris, the natural leader, Teddy, the glasses wearing rageaholic, um, obsessed with Normandy, uh, Vern, who is the annoying one and Gordy, 
the cat. The cat. <laughs> we were going for the same joke. Oh, man. Um, Reiner considered casting Sean Astin, who had previously worked with Corey Feldman on The Goonies, and Ethan Hawke, who had worked with River Phoenix in 1985's Explorers, um, and also Stephen Dorff, who would make his film debut in 1987's The Gate. But, man, can you imagine if Sean Astin had done all of the stuff he did in the 80s and also Stand By Me? He would have just crushed that. The whole decade would have belonged. It would have been the decade of Astin instead of the decade of Feldman. What else did he do after Goonies? I mean, aside from all the uh, Lord of the Rings Rudy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, Rudy might have been 90s. No, yeah, it was 93. Ultimately, Reiner went with the future reviled character of Wesley Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation, Will Wheaton. Is he uh, reviled? Oh, yeah. David Long, please get in touch. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's, it's sort of like the, the, like, normie, it's like the galaxy brain take, like the, the pea brain take is to be like, Will Wheaton is annoying in Star Trek The Next Generation, and then it gets progressively into, like, reassessing him but i believe at the time he was that character was pretty disliked he was cousin oliver yeah well i think people were just like why is there a kid in star trek and he's like precocious and so that's an easy reason to easy reason to hate um wheaton had previously played susan sarandon's son in the buddy system and starred in the last starfighter another deeply reviled movie uh, he described himself in this era to movie phone by saying, I was awkward and nerdy and shy and uncomfortable in my own skin and really, really sensitive. Uh, there was a similar, I found a similar quote, <laughs> Corey Feldman, Will was from LA and he was very conservative, a geek, if you will. Um, yeah. There's a strange connection in one of the numerous pop culture references that Dot stand by me. Uh, Gordy Lachance mentions the old Western TV show Wagon Train. Will Wheaton's actual grandfather was the prop master on the show back in the 50s. Uh, and that nod in the script is allegedly a reference to him. I love how you say Wheaton as uh, Stewie does. Yeah, it's a uh, family cool guy bit. I was waiting to yeah. see how many times okay. I could do it before you ID'd it. <laughs> Oh, you're very precise in your speech, so I thought maybe that was just how you speak. <laughs> uh, in the film, Wheaton's, Wheaton's character, Gordy Lachance, gotta say the, the whole thing every time, just like a tribe called Quest. In the film, <laughs> Wheaton's character, Gordy Lachance, is the narrator, but the actual voice used was an adult because the story is being told from his grown-up perspective in the framing device of a writer like so many other Stephen King books. The original voice actor was David, the unfortunately named David Dukes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one S away <laughs> yeah, from a hate monger. Um, but Einer didn't feel like his voice was right, so he replaced him with Michael McKean, a.k.a. the immortal Nigel St. Hubbins from Spinal Tap, which did not go well. Too much mugging, do you think? Hearing his voice, like, devoid from anything i know about michael mckean i could see it working yeah but yeah maybe he just like couldn't play it completely straight i don't know yeah well reiner went to his old high school buddy richard dreyfus who at that point had just won the oscar for the goodbye girl uh and those two had known each other since they were 15 years old which is adorable and very appropriate for the movie one of the biggest stretches in the casting process was actually jerry o'connell apparently uh Vern is the weak one um He's Piggy, right? Yeah, I was going to say, he's an archetype uh, embodied by Piggy, Sucks to Your Asmar, Jones? I don't remember if that kid had a last name. 
Uh, Reiner told the New York Times, Jerry O'Connell is not scared and nerdy like Vern, but he sounded like Vern. He had no experience. Could he do on film what he did in a reading? I wasn't going to pick him, but he was so Vern in his attitude that at the last minute, I said, let's take a chance. Jerry O'Connell had been in a commercial before this. That was the extent of his acting experience. Uh, and he was excited to swear, as any young child would be. Um, <laughs> the rest of the cast, as you wrote, helpfully chipped in ways to make Vern seem like a loser. Uh, the scene where he can't remember the secret knock to the clubhouse was ad-libbed by the rest of the kids as on the day it was shot to That's great. stick it to him. Uh, and Jerry O'Connell, <laughs> though, had one hell of a Guess glow the last up. laugh. Yeah, man. He got hot and he married Rebecca Romaine. Jerry O'Connell later said, her high school best friend said to me, you know, Stand By Me is Rebecca's favorite movie of all time. She had posters of it all over her room growing up. She never told me that. That's akin to uh, what was Jason Momoa was like watching Cosby Show as a kid and was like, I'm going to marry Lisa Bonet. And then he did. <laughs> it's good to have goals. Uh, fantastic quote from Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland regarding Feldman. Uh, I'd never met a 12-year-old with that kind of rage inside of him. And that's coming from Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Feldman related a little too well to his tortured character of Teddy, self-destructive kid who yells at trains and has a janky ear. Isn't that a book? Men who yell at trains? <laughs> yeah. Has glasses. Um, what else does he do? I mean, the ear thing is really like the main yeah. thing I remember from him. Yeah. And talking about Normandy, his dad being in Normandy. Uh, yeah. uh, Feldman told the Telegraph, I was a very disturbed kid. I had a lot of parental abuse in my home and a trouble upbringing. I think that's what Rob saw in me. It's funny because there's another interview in here where Feldman was like, I basically did this movie because my parents made me do it. <laughs> like they, they, it was like when his, he was being heavily stage managed. For the sake of honesty and to be really brash, what drew me to stand by me was that my parents were my managers and I did what they told me to do. <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's get into the Dickensian horrors of a young Corey Feldman's life. Uh, he was the second of five children born to a record producer father who co-wrote My Boyfriend's Back and I Want Candy and co-produced the garage rock standard Hang On Sloopy by the McCoys. Is that nuts? Yeah, He co-wrote My Boyfriend's Back and I Want Candy. Feldman comes by his musical skill, honestly. And his mother was a Playboy playmate. And they basically forced him into acting when he was three years old. Uh, his first appearance was in a McDonald's commercial in which he stole cookies from Santa Claus. So forced into the meat grinder of Hollywood and learning Santa is fake at three. Oh, man. I didn't even think of that. Tremendous stuff. Uh, Feldman would appear in over 100 television commercials and 50 TV shows, including the bad and was bad news bears a TV show. I think they did. it was like a one-season kind of deal after the movie was a success. I'm going to look that up. Feldman would appear in over 100 television commercials and 50 TV series, including the short-lived Bad News Bears series, Mork and Mindy, Eight is Enough, One Day at a Time, Madam's Place, and Cheers. He was in the films Time After Time and Disney's The Fox and the Hound, making the jump to the big screen in other films like Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter, uh, and Gremlins and Goonies, both of which have the fingerprints of one Steven Spielberg all over them. Uh, Spielberg turned Feldman vegetarian one day when he casually commented <laughs> that 
he was eating a lunch that, quote, was once walking. Ah. Uh, I was watching some behind-the-scenes <laughs> stuff from uh, Temple of Doom the other day, and man, Spielberg could be a real dick. Just his stuff that with, like... surprising. Just, no, no, no. Not, like, James Cameron levels, but just, like, with uh, Kate Capshaw and that, and she's, like, deathly afraid of bugs, and he's like, get in the box with the bugs. <laughs> and then he married her. Um, Reiner had, quote, mixed and matched a dozen boys, phrasing, in his final <laughs> auditions for the movie, but he said Feldman was the only one who was a keeper all the way through. When he walked in the doors and I looked in his eyes, I saw pain and anger, and he was the only kid that could play that kind of pain and anger. I mean, the character's father took his head and put it to the stove and almost burned his ear off. These kids are having to live with that kind of abuse, and while we only touch on that, it's clear this isn't just some fun romp through the forest to go on an adventure. Feldman, who was just 13, agreed. It's later saying, I was playing a character that was similar in some ways. I was bullied, I was suicidal, but unlike Teddy, I was filled with fear and was embarrassed about those kinds of things. His father was a soldier, so he thought he was a soldier too. And although Feldman's childhood was a painful one, he says the experience of working on Stand By Me was ultimately liberating, like a bird being let out of a cage. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, as is so often the case, the cycle of violence was perpetuated in a young Corey Feldman. Relations on the set between the four boys were generally pretty warm, but Will Wheaton later talked about Feldman teasing him until he was in tears. He later told Variety, Corey picked on me all the time to the point of it being, like, cruel. I remember River telling him to stop. But Wheaton doesn't harbor any ill will towards Feldman for his behavior. He later said, he had a really f***ed up childhood, and he suffered a lot. As a 44-year-old father, I can see he was a young person who was just in an incredible amount of pain and didn't have a way of dealing with it. Uh, Feldman and Ryan apparently went through 30 different laughs before landing on the one that they went with, which was presumably the most annoying. 30 laughs. Imagine being trapped in a room with Corey Feldman trying out 30 laughs. Imagine being forced to come up with 30 laughs. At age 12. And I that being it. the more appealing option than going home. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And this leads us to, in my opinion, the hero of Stand By Me, Chris Chambers, expertly played by River Phoenix. Weirdly, this part very nearly went to Corey Haim, which would have made Stand By Me an early vehicle for the two Corys. But the day Rob Reiner offered him the role, I guess Corey Haim was also offered the title role in David Seltzer's tragic comedy, Lucas, which he decided to take instead. And sadly, like River Phoenix, he would also die a premature death. Corey Haim died in 2010 of a drug-induced pneumonia at the age of 38. Uh, River had initially auditioned for the part of Gordy, played by Will Wheaton. But Rob Reiner felt that he was better suited for the part of the troubled but tender tough guy. Uh, this is just nuts to me because the only part that River had played at this point in a movie was in the movie Explorers, which I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's one of my, I love this movie as a kid. He's this kind of like nerdy worrywart who wears like tweed suits all the time. And yeah, like he's not a cool character at all. So it's kind of amazing to me that they saw like tough guy potential in him. Have you ever seen that movie? Nope. Oh, I think I've talked about it on here. Aliens like transmit a, a spaceship schematic to Ethan Hawke's character, who's like mm. 12 or 13 at the time. And so these kids build it and they build it out of like, they go to a junkyard and they get an old uh, tilt-a-whirl car from a carnival 
and they like trick it all out to make it look like this cool spaceship. Oh, it's a great movie. And then they take it to like a drive-in. I forgot Corey Feldman uh, produced a movie called My Truth, The Rape of Two Corys. Oh. Did, did that get a wide release yet? Is it one of those things that he's been trying to release for like a decade? No, it came out in 2020. Oh. Did it? Ooh, ooh. Hell of a title. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in Chris Chambers, River Phoenix was able to exude that tenderness, vulnerability, and understated cool that would become his trademark. River uh, kind of famously had a hell of a life before going to Hollywood. He was born in a log cabin in a forest to parents who were traveling along the West Coast together, picking berries and veggies along the way to survive. They named him River after the Herman Hesse novel Siddhartha, and four other siblings would follow, Rain, Leaves, later Joaquin, Liberty, and Summer, all of whom have some involvement in the entertainment industry. <laughs> and <laughs> I just made myself laughing of a, of a bit that you could do where you're like, you have like five. <laughs> so no, you have like five hippie kids and you're like, you're like, yeah, um, this is my older brother, River, my younger sister, Leaves, uh, the middle child, Phoenix, and uh, the baby of the family, Piss. <laughs> You're like, dad really fell off the wagon for that one. <laughs> oh, man. I forgot that Corey Feldman accused Charlie Sheen of raping Corey Haim. I forgot that, too. In, like, the 80s era? Yeah, on the set of Lucas, actually. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and then Sheen sued the National Enquirer when they printed it. Apparently... Heim, Corey Heim's family and, and, and Corey Feldman are not on good terms. Oh. His mom like sent him like cease and desist letters and was like, you need to keep my son's name out of your mouth. Whoa. Were they close before he died? I don't know if they had patched things up or whatever. Do they have a falling out? I know very little about the Corys. My knowledge extends to the Phoenix family. Yeah, I mean, they were obviously close back in the day. I'm not really sure what happened. Um... This is all just old page six stuff I was Googling. Yeah, I guess his Feldman promised to stop dragging this stuff up with, to his mom and then I guess went back on it. But that Charlie Sheen thing's crazy. Damn. Grim. Almost like Hollywood has a dark side, you know? <laughs> well, now, now to an equally tempestuous upbringing, uh, River Phoenix. Uh, when Phoenix was just three years old, the family moved to Venezuela after joining a controversial, uh, we'll call it, new religious movement and not a cult for legal reasons called the children of God, where uh, I believe Rose McGowan was also raised in it. Uh, it's been described. I can say like that uh, as an authoritarian cult in media following accusations from former members that it encourages both pedophilia and incest. And I think you've actually talked about it on the show. They use a method of evangelism called flirty fishing that use sex to quote, show God's love and mercy and win converts. Didn't really expect this to become one of the darkest episodes we've had, but it's it's starting to trend that way. <laughs> the Phoenix family left the organization in 1977 when River was around seven years old, and he rarely spoke about this period of his life later, though he did reveal that he'd been assaulted at the age of four and tried to, quote, block out the experience. The family returned to the United States penniless and pointed their station wagon to Hollywood, where they 
basically tried to make a living off their kids. River often played guitar while he and his sister sang on street corners for money and food and whatever else they could get from people passing by to support their family. And ironically, that's how they got their first talent rap. This guy was just saw them singing on the street and was impressed. And he started getting acting roles, uh, as did Leaf slash Joaquin, who started in the movie Space Camp, which is also one of my favorite mid-80s movies. Uh, River appeared in commercials and in short-lived sitcoms and was even uh, an audience warm-up performer with his siblings, which is kind of hilarious to me. Uh, my favorite early role was when he played Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in a TV movie about RFK. Hmm which is weird. Uh, All this to say, River Phoenix had lived quite a life when he came to the production of Stand By Me, and he brought that maturity to the role. And he also brought his own ideas to the character. He told Rob Reiner that he wanted to play him as if he were a year older than the others because he'd been held back in school. And he was, I think, the oldest on the set, and his gentle paternal energy was clear to the other boys in the cast. We just talked earlier about him stepping in when Corey Ham was going too far, teasing Will Wheaton. Uh, Will Wheaton told Movie Phone in 2011, River was cool and really smart and passionate, and even at that age, kind of a father figure to some of us. But his authentic emotional performance came at a high cost. River told the Chicago Tribune at the time that he was, quote, a total wreck by the end of the shoot and said that were it not for the stabilizing influence of his family, he would have sought psychological treatment. Hmm. His standout moment in the film comes when Chris tells the story where he's accused of stealing by a teacher who doesn't believe him. To get him in the headspace for this scene, Rob Reiner told him to think of a time when he'd been let down by an adult he trusted. And uh, considering his parents had joined a religious organization rife with accusations of incest and pedophilia, this was probably a loaded prompt. A little too close to the bone. Yes. After capturing this scene, River reportedly could not stop crying to such an extent that Rob had to go over and give him a hug until he calmed down. Uh, But where there's trauma, there's also trauma bonding. (laughs) Let me take that again. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I thought... they all had they all had really sweet things to say about him. Kiefer Sutherland uh, told the Guardian, he said River Phoenix specifically had such an appetite to learn and be good. He was a year older than I, and I think it made a pretty significant difference. When the others were doing age appropriate things, River was asking questions like, "Would you mind running lines with me?" <laughs> um, yeah, and then and in that same article, uh, Rob Reiner said that um, River was thirteen and like a young James Dean. There was so much soul there. He had this great wisdom for a guy that age. I really like River Phoenix. I know you're not as big of a fan. I just don't like, I don't, I, I've seen this and uh, Last Crusade. Oh. My own private Idaho is really good. Mm. I think you'd enjoy that. You love a coming of age. I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the cast, uh, obviously the chemistry, you can't fake that. And Rob Reiner went to great lengths to ensure that his young stars developed real friendship between them. Soon after casting was finalized in June 1985, they met up in a hotel suite in Oregon where the film was shot for a week of what were basically drama nerd games based on Viola Sporlin's improvisations for the theater. Rob Reiner would later explain, theater games develop trust among people, and her book is the Bible. And funnily enough, he formed an improvisational theater group with Richard Dreyfuss when they were 19. So again, it all goes back to those early adolescent memories. For a week, they did stuff like pretend that another boy was a mirror and mime his gestures, continue a story that another had started, be led around a hotel lobby blindfolded, 
and remember what everyone in the circle had chosen to pack in a trunk. And it wasn't until the second week that they even cracked the script. I love that. Uh, it's important to remember that these boys were young. River was 14, Corey Feldman was 13, Will Wheaton was 12, and Jerry O'Connell, who again, just had one commercial to his CV, was 11 while filming began. And they all remember Rob Reiner as being unusually gifted at connecting with them. Jerry O'Connell later said, Rob was so great with kids. He was like the fifth boy in Stand By Me. For the first two weeks, we didn't say a line. We didn't rehearse. He locked us in a room and we just played games and hung out and we became friends. And on the set, Reiner had a habit of standing behind the camera and reading lines, which is kind of surprising to me because that's something that directors aren't supposed to do. But he said, I would stand behind the camera and act nearly every scene out for them so they could hear what the part should sound like. That's part of the benefit of being an actor myself. I didn't want the kids acting. I had some trouble with Corey, no surprise, who would say, you're not letting me act, Rob. And I would say, this has to be real. Filming began on July 17th, 1985. And as we said earlier, the movie was shot in and around the Oregon towns and cities of Eugene, Veneta, Franklin, Cottage Grove, and Brownsville. And in fact, the only part of the movie shot in California was the scene where the boys outrun the train on the bridge, which we'll talk about later. Uh, Brownsville was heavily featured as the fictional Castle Rock due to its 50s aesthetic, and the town remains immensely proud of its role in the movie. At the Brownsville Visitor Center today, there's a map that displays all of the movie's locations in five different languages, and on both the 25th and 30th anniversary of the movie, the town was the site of enormous celebrations featuring guided tours, cast and crew reunions, and yes, pie-eating contests. <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, and yes corpses <laughs> the body of teen but many dead teenagers it's, I mean, how amazing would that be if they did like a like a scavenger hunt for like... here's a question how do yes. you get hit by a train um <sighs> jerry seinfeld voice last time i checked you know where it's gonna be you know I, I forget. Did they talk about that? I actually, you've seen the movie more recently than me. Do they talk about what happened? They just say it knocked him out of his kids. Right out of his kids, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I the only thing I can think of, unless his car stalled on it, which it sounds like wasn't the case, uh, was that it was intentional on his part. Yeah. Which I think changes it's, yeah. the tone of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't. That doesn't seem right. Hmm. I, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, is it weird that my first thought was that he put like pennies on the train track and was something and was like trying to retrieve them? I. Or I mean, maybe, I don't know. Look, maybe it was a dare. You, did you grow up? Did you grow up by train tracks? Yeah. 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 Same. Spent a lot of time on them. I didn't. Hmm. And therein lies the difference. <laughs> I was gonna say. What you did know you do when on them? Oh, you know, through rocks and stuff. Uh, had fires um, on the train tracks in the overpasses. Why would you do that? That's the one place where you absolutely know someone's going to be at some point. Yeah, 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 for sure. Well, I was stupid. Um, yeah, but you know when they're coming is the thing. You yeah. Know? Uh, I, I, you know, I never, in all the years I've seen this movie, I never really thought of that. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah. Lines are open. I'm. It seems like a bet in the same way that Teddy like 
tries to play a game of chicken with the train. Like I that that's kind of my only guess. Although I will say, you know what? I was gonna save this for when we were talking about the uh the scene on the bridge, but um Go on. My dad had a similar incident with a train in in it was some stupid frat thing when he was in college in like 1970 and the fraternity brothers when they were pledging would like blindfold you and drop you off somewhere in town and you had the and you were blindfolded so you had no idea where you were and you had to find your way back to the frat house but sure all the brothers would be driving around the streets all night if they found you they'd put you in the car again blindfold you drive you somewhere else and you start from scratch and you had to find your way back to the frat house by morning and my dad and whoever he was with, I don't know whose idea it was, probably my dad's, was if we cut across the train tracks on the bridge, they can't drive across that. It's a nice shortcut back to school. Let's do that. And it was the same deal as in Stand By Me. They were midway across, and all of a sudden the train came. And uh, yeah. Interesting. But they made okay. it, and here okay. I am. So maybe <laughs> there was some kind of weird... Yeah, like I, a sex thing. T- teenage stupidity is the only guess I have. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. That yeah. tracks. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. And speaking of teenage stupidity... (laughs) The production for the young cast was as idyllic as one would hope. Will Wheaton later said, all of us have described it in some way or another as a sort of summer camp. And I think it's really true. It's one of those experiences that, just as it changed the characters in the movie, changed all of us a little bit, too. And he also added, when you saw the four of us being comrades, that was real life, not acting. And some of this was thanks to Rob Reiner's fastidious rehearsals and all the team building, you know, 
games and stuff. But also, he put together a lot of bonding activities for the four while on location, too, which included visits to carnivals, also whitewater rafting. But most of the bonding went down outside of the watchful eyes of adults. In an interview with The Wrap, Corey Feldman explained that the film marked a number of personal firsts for him. He said, I went to my first nightclub, got drunk for the first time, kissed a girl for the first time, shot a music video for the first time with River for his music, and even smoked weed for the first time, again with River. And it was also his first time. And uh, he also added that he and River, who were the two oldest members of the main four, rented penthouse videos at their hotel suite. And also Caligula, the erotic Hmm. historical drama produced by penthouse publisher Bob Giacconi, which Mm -hmm. is kind of unusually highbrow for a bunch of teens trying to find porn. It's got, you know, Malcolm McDowell, Helen Mirren, Peter O'Toole, John Gilgood, script by Gore Vidal. That's just, Mm -hmm. I'm impressed. That's much more cultured than like scrambled cable of of our (laughs) youth. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And even the shy, sensitive, goodest boy, Will Wheaton, got into the act in his own way. Uh, He was something of a tech prodigy. And so River Phoenix put him up to rigging the arcade games at the hotel in a way where they didn't have to pay. (laughs) He promised them that if they got caught, he would take the heat for it. Uh, River, he was very busy during the uh, after hours on the set. Rob Reiner remembers that he came to the set one day, quote, with a big smile on his face after spending the night with a family friend. He was 14, about to turn 15. Uh, he said it happened under the stars. And uh, <laughs> this is this is uh, an, adding another quote from Reiner. He said it was with a family friend and that it happened under the stars and she had shown him what to do. But he still found time <laughs> for less uh, adult pursuits. He would fondly remember the pranks during the first few weeks of filming when they took the hotel pool chairs and threw them into the pool and also, quote, soaked Corey's clothes full of beer and they dried and he smelled like a wino. Charming. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, what is a family friend in a, in a, in a virginity losing situation? Who yeah, I didn't what? like that that was the word that was used, especially given yeah. his history. His, yeah, his, the family in question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like that. I don't like that okay. at all. Okay. Just checking. Yeah. No, but thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Even sweet little Jerry O'Connell got up to his share of mischief. He was ratted out by Kiefer Sutherland, who played the part of Bully Ace in the film. Uh, during an appearance on Jimmy Kimmel Live in 2011, Keither claimed that Jerry O'Connell had tied his babysitter to a banister in order to escape to a renaissance fair nearby and then accidentally ate cookies that were laced with pot. And as the story goes, Kiefer Sutherland found him later in a parking lot, woozy and crying. Who among us? (laughs) (laughs) To a renaissance fair. (laughs) (sighs) And on a semi-related note, Rob Reiner is known for his strong anti-smoking stance and was one of the members of the Hollywood community who pushed for California's smoking ban. So for his production on Stand By Me, all the cigarettes smoked on camera were made out of cabbage leaves. Hmm. Yeah. I did wonder about that. Did you? No, you didn't. No, I did because there's the movie opens with them smoking, you know, minus the flashback scene. I was just like, oh, yeah, like you don't really see that that much anymore yeah Kiefer Sutherland was excited to work with Rob Reiner because he was a big fan of Spinal Tap 
uh, as any right-thinking adult is. The two of them got along great, and they agreed that the character Ace Merrill had essentially no inner life. <laughs> Talking to the Guardian, Kiefer said, Rob and I both agreed very strongly there was no mushy side to this guy. This is an asshole to the marrow of his bones. Unfortunately, every town seems to have one. He was a bully, and the only way to make that character work was if you hated him. Uh, Kiefer went on a sort of method during the production of Stand By Me. He rolled a car off a sandbank with John Cusack and also set about intimidating the younger boys, even when the cameras weren't rolling. The three uh, more seasoned actors among the kids' cast didn't seem to care. River retaliated by covering Kiefer's car with mud. Um, although you said that uh, River didn't have any idea that that was Kiefer's car. So it probably uh, made it worse. Yeah. Uh, Jerry O'Connell was legitimately frightened. Uh, he said, I wasn't scared of anyone on the set except Kiefer. He really made himself very menacing to us. Speaking of mud, there is, of course, the iconic leech scene. Uh, yeah, it's it's the worst part in the movie, man. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Stephen King uh, has not commented on the veracity of it, but he says that uh, it was based on a childhood experience of his. And those were not real leeches, despite what the internet will frequently tell you. Uh, but some of the fauna in that scene were real. For the swamp, uh, the production team created a man-made pond that they filled with water in the middle of the forest and then just left alone for two weeks. <laughs> so as a result, Corey Feldman recalled, all the worms and bugs and the leaves and the raccoons, they were all in there. Nature took its course. Uh, the leeches themselves, though, were just rubber molds. Ah, yes. Now the real centerpiece of this movie. The pie-eating scene. The Barfo-Rama. I hate this so much. It's awful. It's awful, and it's true. It doesn't need to be there. It's so bizarre, man. It just... it. I can't tell if they were going for, like, a dream sequence kind of thing, because the fat suit that they put that guy in is so distractingly bad. It's, like, amazing to me that they went through the trouble of, like, doing this train thing with stunts and it, blah, blah, blah. And then they, for this scene, they just put a pillow in this guy's shirt. Like, and we're like, yeah, it looks great. Looks amazing. Um, anyway, is this is the campfire story that <laughs> it's also hilarious that, like, such hilarious, like, writer brain that uh, the, 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 the crux of this emotional film where River, River Phoenix is like, you're a, you're a writer. You have, like, great talent. <laughs> You're really going to be something. And the evidence that we have of that is a story about a guy barfing on purpose at a pie-eating contest. It's like... <laughs> like, if one of your friends... If one of your... How would you... you get, here's, a, here's a question. You get asked a lot by people for, like, advice on their stuff. What if somebody... In a... In a, in a like, the, like the movie Yesterday, in which the Beatles don't exist. In a world where Stand By Me doesn't exist, I come to you. And I'm like, Jordan, this podcast is really great. And I have been a professional writer for 12 years. But I'm really trying to get into short fiction. I have this story. Would you read it? What would you do? You've read far worse of mine. <laughs> That's not true. Anyway, this story sucks. And yeah, it's it a weird thing to make the centerpiece of the film. Anyway. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Rob Reiner said he was conflicted about whether or not to include the scene. I wrestled with including it, not because it was too graphic, but because we'd established that Gordy is going to turn into a great writer someday. Would he really tell a story about vomiting? 
So I went back and forth, but I made peace and I said, okay. Uh, the, the screenwriter says, uh, <laughs> he, he makes a compelling point. Uh, oh no, sorry. The actor who played Lardass, Andy Lindbergh, has makes a compelling point to Entertainment Weekly. He says that story is the kind of thing that would win the Pulitzer if twelve-year-olds could vote. <laughs> Fair. Um, the vomit was created with large quantities of large curd, cottage cheese, and blueberry pie filling. A sentence that turns my stomach. It is funny though that they didn't pick another fruit because blueberries are so extremely Maine. Do blueberries yeah. grow in, in Oregon? They don't, no. Mm. Well, to achieve the requisite projectile vomit effect, the crew employed, quote, four or five guys to press down on a giant plunger on top of a cylinder, which pushed all five gallons of pie filling up a vacuum hose. That's horrifying. Uh, Andy Lindbergh, who played Lardass, uh, <laughs> I think he said originally that the first time they tried it, they used a power washer. And it was like 500 pounds per square inch of pressure that just like nailed the guy next to him. Um, Jesus. <laughs> Lindbergh later claimed that a friend of his who worked in a California movie theater told him that during nearly every showing of Stand By Me, someone would throw up during that scene. He said, that of course for me is a point of pride. I've made people throw up all over the world. And that's very interesting to me because in another Corey Feldman movie, The Goonies, the character of Chunk tells the story of vomiting in a theater and setting off a similar chain reaction. Speaking of train reactions, <laughs> pause for applause. <laughs> the other centerpiece of the film is the train scene. The boys attempt to save time by crossing a railroad bridge only to discover midway across that a train was in fact coming, sending all four scrambling for their lives. Um, I would have been so pissed at Jerry O'Connell, man. They probably could have made it if he hadn't crawled and then just froze up. Like a hedgehog. <laughs> God, I hate hedgehogs. <laughs> As one might expect, Rob Reiner uh, went to great lengths to ensure that the child actors were safe. This wasn't a, a John Landis production. Um, <laughs> some of the God. long shots, some of the long shots were completed. Just Google that later. Some of the long shots were completed with the help of female stunt doubles with short cropped hair, while others were achieved with the help of camera tricks, like uh, what they call uh, image compression, not the like digital file compression, but um, use a 600 millimeter lens uh, that compresses the distance that it's being filmed at. Um, is it like a zoom trick? I, t I talk about this like I know what I'm talking about. Is it like the Scorsese pool where you're like physically moving the lens and also moving the camera away from it? Yeah, I think it's like the depth of field. Like you can't tell. I think it's. I think it's similar to what Hitchcock did in Vertigo when he did the whole like. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. They move the camera forward, but move the zoom out, and it creates. That's this really the Scorsese pull. effect. That's the oh, Scorsese, the Scorsese? Okay. Yeah, because he which uh, or the I mean it's just a dolly zoom, but I don't know. I don't know anything about the compression thing. Even though I just was talking about it like I was, the result of which meant that the train looked like it was bearing down on the boys when it was in fact in the distance because that's how perspective works because of this the young actors had a hard time summoning up an appropriate expression of fear and reiner uh reached the edge of his patience with them after they did not summon the requisite terror filming this scene kids blew take after take and reiner came down on them screaming that they were f***ing this thing up 
It's a hilarious thing to scream at kids. Well, it was 90 degrees, and the 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 grips on the film were, were pushing this dolly back and forth uh, on the train tracks. Uh, Reiner later told the Telegraph, it was very hot. The guys were pushing this dolly down the track to follow these boys running, and they were supposed to be hysterical, just crying and panicking. We did it a bunch of times, and they kept not getting worked up. Finally, I started screaming, the crew are exhausted because you guys keep messing up, and if you're not worried that the train is going to kill you, I'll kill you. So some of the tears in the scene are actually real. Will Wheaton recalled, we weren't taking it seriously, and it was hot and it was hard. I remember Rob <laughs> yelling at us that we're running, phrasing, I remember Rob yelling at us that we're ruining his movie. We immediately burst into tears. Rob rolled the cameras. It worked. When it was over, I just couldn't stop crying. All the adrenaline, everything was overwhelming. Rob hugged us and thanked us for our good work, and I still couldn't stop crying. Uh, you'll notice that uh, River Phoenix's voice uh, has has changed and his physical appearance as well, because this was shot towards the end of the movie, and puberty hit that kid like a ton of bricks. And now we got to talk about the dead body, the whole reason for this quest. The mortal remains of Ray Brower are, as is probably the intent, sort of undramatic. He, uh was kind of terrifyingly normal-seeming, which made the concept of death hit a lot closer to home for these kids. Rather than focusing on the gore, the kids, or at least Gordy and Chris, get very introspective upon finding him. The role of Ray Brower, or at least Ray Brower's body, was played by Kent Luttrell, who was a college freshman who answered an ad in the school paper seeking stand-ins and doubles for Stand By Me. And after three auditions, he was given the role of Corey Feldman's stand-in, and that was all he was supposed to be until the day they were shooting the body scene, the scene where they discovered the body. The mannequin they planned to use looked too fake, so they asked Kent if he'd be willing to sub in as a corpse. And during the first take, they had black beetles crawling out of this kid's mouth, which is <laughs> so gross, and one of them bit his lip. Duh. I thought you were going to be like, during the first take, he nailed it. <laughs> yeah, it was apparently so gross that uh, one of the cameramen rewarded him with a shot of whiskey after the beetle bit him. Uh, and then for the second take, they decided to go without the Beatles. Um, and I think that's the one that ended up in the final movie. But in order to get a more authentic reaction, Rob Reiner forbade the four leads from seeing Kent in his corpse makeup until the cameras were rolling, which is what Dick Donner did to Corey Feldman and the rest of the cast of The Goonies when it came to One-Eyed Willie's pirate ship, right? He mm -hmm. wouldn't let him see it so he could get their authentic reaction on camera. Good. Yeah, good. <laughs> and since this movie is set in 1959, Stand By Me makes use of era-appropriate music. But weirdly... The producers reportedly considered hiring Michael Jackson to contribute to the soundtrack. The story comes from Corey Feldman, who was close with Michael at the time. I'll go with close. Uh, he says he heard from Michael soon after the film's rough cut was first screened. Feldman recalled, Michael sent me a message saying, hey, I just saw your movie. Great work. They were asking if they could use one of his songs in the film, or maybe he was going to write an original song for it. But it was around that time they decided to go with an all-50s soundtrack instead. And I've also heard the theory that they were going to record a cover of Stand By Me with Michael Jackson, but the producers decided to stick with the original version and just, you know, keep everything steeped in the 50s. I uh, related hate, musical, the, I, I hate the score that they use, the, the cue that they use, because it's all 50s, and then you just hear, like, gauzy 80s synths like gently kind of quoting the stand by me you know melody and stuff 
Interesting. I don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Is it who who did it? Was it I think Jack or? Nietzsche actually did. Oh yeah, you're right. You're and right. Jack Nietzsche um was actually a member of uh Phil Spector's inner squad. I think he did a lot of arrangements for stuff like the Ronettes and the Crystals. And then I think he won the Oscar, I think, for uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for his work on the score for that. Hmm. Worked with a lot of people. Worked with like Neil Young, the Rolling Stones. Yep. But apparently uh, really blew it with this. <laughs> I know. I just, it's funny because like the, the, the 50s stuff is really evocative, but then you'll just hear like synthesizers doing like the the baseline or like some of the I, I just thought it was because hmm. I I think I remembered that Stand By Me doesn't actually appear in the movie until the end credits but they're quoting it in the in some of the cues anyway but the 80s were a terrible time for film scoring on a related musical note the western TV show theme that the boys repeatedly sing you know have gun will travel da, 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 da. Uh, I think it's actually called the ballad of paladin was used without permission and Johnny Western the guy who actually sings the song managed to sue the producers for not asking his permission mm-hmm. hope he got a payday off it I'm sure he did well even after the whole embassy kerfuffle when production of this movie started when Rob Reiner's old TV executive buddy Norman Lear had to pony up millions of dollars to get this thing made the process to find someone to distribute the final version of Stand By Me was not easy. It was after all an R-rated movie centered on children. Tough sell. Tough sell. Reportedly every studio passed on the completed movie and the only friend it had in Hollywood was Mike Ovitz, the head of CAA, Creative Artists Agency, which is like, you know, one of the most powerful agencies in Hollywood. He made it his mission to find a studio to release it and ultimately he found a taker in Columbia, whose new president warmed to the movie after he watched it at his home one night when he was sick and his kids were crazy about it. Screenwriter and producer Bruce Evans said, what happened was Columbia's production head, a guy named Guy. No, no, I'm not gonna. What happened was Columbia's production head wasn't feeling good. So he had the movie shown at his house. He brought all the marketing people and the executives, but the crucial members of the audience were his two daughters. About halfway through, they were in love with River Phoenix. Uh, older and slightly more discerning audiences would agree. Uh, Stand By Me was a sleeper hit upon its release in August 1986, making over $52 million off the back of a $7.5 million budget. In addition to its financial success, the film was received well by critics. Sheila Benson of the Los Angeles Times called the film, quote, one of those treasures absolutely not to be missed and, quote, a perfectly performed look at the real heart of youth. And unsurprisingly, the majority of the critical plaudits were heaped on the young actors. Carrie Ricker of the Philadelphia Inquirer dubbed Stand By Me, quote, a small, quiet film that walks tall and resonates long after. Currently has a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 91% and earned a nomination for Best Adopted Screenplay. With those kind of numbers, mm-hmm. in this current climate, we would have gotten two sequels and a yeah. prequel. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Stand by me too. Stand harder. Stand harder. <laughs> Walk the line. <laughs> oh, but there's a cute Stephen King story though. Here, you, you talk about this. This is your beloved Stephen King. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, he's a sweet boy. Uh, King is famously a harsh critic when it comes to the filmed adaptations of his work. Uh, the big one, of course, being The Shining. In an interview with Rolling Stone, King admitted he's never been fond of movie adaptations of his work because I see them as a lesser medium than fiction. <laughs> 
just right out the <laughs> gate. God love him. A more ephemeral medium. But according to King, uh, Stand By Me was the first film adaptation of one of his stories that got it right. And he was moved to tears by the sight of it. Rob Reiner recalled, We showed the film to Stephen alone in a screening room, and when it was over, he was pretty broken up. He excused himself for about 15 minutes. When he came back, he said, That's the best film ever made out of anything I've written. You've really captured my story. It is autobiographical. All that was made up was the device of the hunt for the body. And King and Reiner have had one of the most uh, fruitful adaptation collaborations. Uh, done 1990s Misery, uh, which uh, nabbed a Best Actress Oscar for Kathy Bates, who I think is 75 today, actually. Oh, wow. And Castle right. Rock uh, has produced a further six adaptations of King's works. Needful Things, The Shawshank Redemption, Dolores Claiborne, The Green Mile, Hearts in Atlantis, and Dreamcatcher, which you could definitely plot on a downward <laughs> a downward trend. A brief tick up for Green Mile, Hearts in Atlantis, Dreamcatcher. God, those movies suck. Of all the films Rob Reiner has made, he does say, though, that Stand By Me is the one of which he is most proud. And you forget, he's got a good track record. A Few Good Men, Spinal Tap, Princess Bride, Misery. Damn. Yeah. The emotional gut punch of Stand By Me was given extra oomph following the death of River Phoenix on Halloween 1993. Uh, this is especially true with a scene where his character walks off into the distance and disappears as the voiceover shares his tragic fate. Reiner would later say, it's so sad. Every time I see that scene when he disappears at the end of the movie, it's chilling. I never thought River was going to be one who would struggle. He was a good kid who was so talented. He would have been like Johnny Depp ooh, or Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> it's such a tragic loss. Richard Dreyfuss, who provided the voice of the older Gordy, echoed the sentiment, saying, He was, without question, the best of that group of actors that came up at that time. Movie stardom isn't just acting talent. It's not just your ability to move an audience. It's a combination of a lot of things, and he had it. He passed so young, and it was a real shame. Will Wheaton, his co-star, later said, I stayed mad at River for a long time after he died. He was the one who was going to have the Tom Hanks career. Uh, I, don't, I don't know about that, but I... I Strange I thing to say, too, that you stayed mad at him. No, a lot of people say that about people who've died early and feel like things are unresolved or abandoned. or. But Tom Hanks, I don't know if he would have... I don't think he would have... Uh, what's, what's the most ridiculous Tom Hanks thing? Although I can, Turner and River Hooch? Phoenix and Castaway? Whoa. River Phoenix and Turner and Hooch? <laughs> River Phoenix and that thing you do. River Phoenix and the Lady Killers. Is it weird? That was one of the first things I thought of, too. And I was like, no, there's no <laughs> way anyone knows what I'm talking about. It's really nuts to think that River Phoenix actually only made 13 films. And uh, it's interesting to think of the roles that he was going to play in projects that never got off the ground because he wasn't around to attach himself. He was supposed to play the Christian Slater role in Interview with the Vampire, and Slater ultimately donated his entire $250,000 fee for that film to two of River's favorite charities, Earth Save and Earth Trust. He was a big environmentalist and very active with the uh, PETA organization. Uh, also, Leonardo DiCaprio's in The Basketball Diaries, Total Eclipse, and most notably, although I'd never really heard this, uh, Titanic were reportedly earmarked for River Phoenix early on before he died. Hmm. Uh, interestingly, Leo also claimed that he actually saw River at a Hollywood party on the night he died. 
Leo said that it was as if Phoenix, quote, disappeared in front of my very eyes. And he also said that he was, quote, struck by the sense of tragedy I felt afterwards, having lost this great influence for me and all my friends. But the ending of the movie felt especially poignant to Will Wheaton, who, as we said, was close to River during filming. But the pair fell out of touch, as is the case when people grow up. And in a sense, Will became his character. He later said, around the time River died, I hadn't talked to him for years, so I carry a little bit of guilt. But we do what we can, and enough time has elapsed now that when we watch it, I recall with tremendous fondness the experiences we had shooting it. So the takeaway for this episode, aside from the fact that this movie rules, I don't care what Heigl says, <laughs> and that life corrodes us all, reach out to your friends, even if, and especially if, you've fallen out of touch and you haven't talked for a while. It will always make them happy. And make you happy as well. Heigl, final thoughts. No, I mean, I just, it's, it's, it is really important to take time out of your day to reconnect with those people who meant a lot to you and who you promised to return to your hometown after 30 years if a carnivorous ancient evil clown ever returned. Um, and well read said. It, read it instead of watching <laughs> this movie. Take us home. No, <laughs> I was trying to. I was trying to pull out a Pennywise impression. Uh, I couldn't do it. Ooh, can you do one, Georgie? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I have one. I was just trying to think of a standby me line that I could use for it. Do, do you kids want to see a dead body? <laughs> How have I never heard your Pennywise impression? Until Sucks to right your ass, Mar. <laughs> Sucks to your ass, Mar. Just really it the gifts every time. The, the, the gift that keeps on. The gift that keeps on giving. That's what they should have called this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, thank you for listening. This has been too much information. I'm Alex Heigel. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.